Hello, hello, peace lovers and peacemakers. This is Sarah Jamshidi. Welcome to Peace Mindedly, a podcast show featuring peaceful bridge makers. So I wonder, do you know feminism? Do you know the F word? Who created the women's movement? What are the social structure? What are the social frustration? And what are the social hierarchy that sparked women to take action against men? What happened and why? In this hour, we are talking with author who lays out and explains why these concepts are very important to talk about. Carol Hay is the author of Think Like a Feminist, The Philosophy Behind the Revolution. In her book, Carol's unpacks more than 200 years of feminist thoughts with a language we can understand. We can understand. She states that feminism has a PR problem. Then she explains why angry feminism and girl power feminists have stolen the radical potential of the feminism movement. She explains first wave, second wave, and third wave feminism and tells us why white women feminism is not the only problem that we, we should solve. So here I am bringing Carol Hay. Hello, Carol. Hi, thank you for having me. Absolutely. It's a pleasure to have you and to host you on Peace Mindedly. Carol is an associate professor of philosophy at the University of Massachusetts, Lowell. She is written for New York Times, Boston Globe, and Aeon Magazine. She divides her time between Boston and San Francisco. So I was reading the book and I was reading the paragraphs, paragraph under paragraph, and some of the paragraphs went on for about one and a half pages. So I know that Carol is so enthusiastic about, about the concept, about feminism, and she talks the same way, fast and enthusiastically. <laughs> uh, Carol, tell us, what is feminism? What is feminism? Well, I like, as I joke in the book, I think if you were to ask 10 different feminists what feminism is, you'll probably get 11 different answers. So there are feminisms. There are a lot of feminisms. And um, I don't claim to be speaking for all of them. But what I do try to do in this book is lay out some commonalities that I think that you can see across the movement. And um, so the way I like to put it is that someone is a feminist if they if they agree with the social science, if they agree with the history, if they agree with what these non-philosophers, but rather social scientists, historians, these people whose job it is to sort of look at human life. And basically all of these experts tell us that by every uh, measure we have to measure quality of life, whether that's subjective reports of happiness, whether that's um, health, whether that's wealth, whether that's political representation, whether that's control over one's life, whether it's um, you know, representation, uh, positive representations in media and in culture, there are a lot of different ways to measure the quality of human life. There isn't just one. But every single way that we have of measuring these differences, women don't do as well as men. And um, so you're a feminist if you recognize those, those realities. Um, if you think that this, these realities are bad, that they're a bad thing, and that if you think that they can and should be changed. And then finally, I think feminists tend to agree that the, um, 
these aren't problems that are going to be sort of fixed piecemeal, right? So we can't um, we we can't fix the problems that women face without also simultaneously um, tackling problems of racism, tackling problems of classism, homophobia, ableism, all of these interlocking or interrelated oppressions. So the thought is that feminists now recognize that if we just try to make things better for women in general, what that almost always looks like is making things better for women at the top. Right, women who are already very wealthy, women who are able-bodied, women who are straight, women who are white. And there's been a history in the feminist movement of making these mistakes. And I think feminists are getting better at recognizing those mistakes and um, realizing that these problems really need to be tackled all at once. Yeah, so you mentioned uh, in order to just explain uh, this feminism movement, we also need to take into consideration of ableism and racism and classism. So the question is, we have been uh, throughout the history, we have been just dealing with masculine social structure and patriarchy. So does the patriarchy have to ever consider ableism and racism and classism? Oh, well, I think that um, what we see is the patriarchy is one of a number of different systems of oppression that all work in concert, right? So patriarchy is intimately tied up with classism, for example, and capitalism and, um, and homophobia and these sorts of things. So these things sort of mutually support each other in various ways, right? The military industrial complex, whatever it is, right? These things are all sort of interlinked. And so the thought is that most feminists don't think that the world order, you know, the utopian world order we're hoping for is one where women have all of the power and men have none of it, right? This isn't, this isn't what, like, you know, like your mom always said, two wrongs don't make a right, right? So the, the solution isn't just to replace everything in the world that's masculine with something that's feminism. The solution is going to be much more complex than that. And it's going to really probably involve really rethinking how we think about gender, how we think about sex, how we think about sexuality and the relationships between men and women. I wonder why some of the feminists are really frustrated and emotional and when they are start speaking they become agitated and they get this label of a stereotype of angry women or angry feminists where is this coming from well i think it's in part just because it's how we how we see or rather how we perceive a woman who's angry because we, when a woman is angry she's not acting in a socially acceptable way right a man who is angry he's you know he's being you know righteous right he's he's you know he's he's seeing injustice or there, he's he's responding to something objective about the world we tend to assume right whereas when we see a woman who's angry we think because we have this stereotype in the back of our mind that tells us that women are emotional and irrational if we see a woman who's angry we think well she's probably just you know being being crazy right being hysterical right and um we're much likelier to label her off or to write her off as as a crazy woman than we are to listen to what she's saying and actually ask ourselves whether she has something that's worth being angry about, right? Whereas when you see an angry man, we're much likelier to take him seriously and think, oh, he must be responding to, some, to something that's worth being angry about. Whereas I think too often we tend to think women are just being irrational or hysterical. And so we don't even listen, really listen to what they say. Is there history behind this uh, kind of interaction? Yeah, yeah. So I think um, so. It's interesting because so a philosopher Bell Hooks, she's a, she's a, um, a black philosopher. She um, she points out that for all of this tendency we have historically to paint women as irrational and hysterical, and men as rational and logical and analytical and even tempered, for all of the, the tendency we have to sort of like sort the sexes in these in these different ways. Um, the one emotion that we really don't like to see in women, despite the fact that women are supposed to be emotional, the one emotion we really don't like in women is anger. 
And notice we also don't like um, emotion in people of color. We don't like the anger. We don't like angry people of color. We don't like people who are poor to display too much anger. I mean, think for example of the um, of the way that the the, the Trump campaign is is trying to uh, portray the events of this summer in America, right? All of the protests and things like that. Writing people writing people at the margins off as angry is important for the status quo because anger is the one emotion that might actually get things done. Right, so we can call women emotional if, if the emotions that they are experiencing are despair or like uh, other sort of more feminine emotions, right? But if it's if it's anger, and anger can actually motivate action. Anger can change the world, right? So Rebecca Traister is a novelist or is, is a journalist who just wrote a book called All the Rage, and she actually talks about this sort of the, the formative power of women's anger and how there's a history of of writing that off, right? So she talks about Rosa Parks, for example, right? We like to sort of think about Rosa Parks as this civil rights hero, and she. And we, we tend to paint her as this meek woman who, you know, just decided one day she wasn't going to give up her seat on the bus, right? It's sort of, it's a nonviolent action. It's very, because it fits with our conception of what women should be like, right? Turns out if you actually knew Rosa Parks, apparently the woman was incredibly angry often because she was responding to actual injustice. And uh, uh, Traster tells a story about Rosa Parks threatening a boy who was threatening her with a brick, right, as a child, right? So this is an incredibly angry woman. But when we're cleaning up the story about what she's actually like, we don't, you know, for history, we, we we tend to paper over those things because we don't like these stories that uh, paint women as angry because we don't want to consider the fact or the possibility that 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 they might actually really have something to be angry about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know that I already asked, but I wonder. I'm still trying to get that why we do not accept women to get angry. I mean, from 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 reading the book, at least I understood that it's sort of. Um, not okay, but it's not too taboo for a white woman to get angry. But it's taboo for, as you said, we attach more emotion, we attach more negative stereotype and negative connotations against colored mm -hmm. colored women. So how how do you see that? Why there is so much differences between white women feminism and colored colored women feminism? So I think that basically. Um, there's a nice metaphor that I talk about in the book. It comes from the, uh, the, the Black feminist philosopher, Kimberly, Kimberly Crenshaw. And she talks about oppression as a basement. And so if we think of sort of anti-oppressive movements, right, whether that's anti-racism movements or feminist movements or anything else, we, uh, we, we can look at who exactly these movements are trying to help. And Crenshaw says if we think of these movements as like a basement, we can think of everyone who's oppressed as in a basement. But some people are more oppressed than others. Too often, these liberation movements, whether it be the civil rights movement or feminism or anything else, they focus really only on um, getting those people out of the basement who are barely in it, right? And so she says, we, we, if feminism acts as a sort of like single issue filter, right? If, if feminism is only really interested in the um, the social issues that affect relatively privileged women, sure, maybe you might end up getting making things a little bit better for um, middle class white women. And so what that looks like is a feminism that really wants to, you know, get women into corporate leadership events, a feminism that thinks all we really need is more female politicians. Uh, a feminism, again, historically we saw this in the, in the second wave of feminism, we, we saw a lot of uh, feminists arguing that really the goal should just be to get for rich white women the privileges that rich white men already had. So, you know, more access to, 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 to careers and, and education and these sorts of things. Meanwhile, ignoring the fact that um, these rich white women, uh, say Betty Friedan, for example, wrote, the, wrote this, a book called the, um, the Feminine Mystique. And in The Feminine Mystique, Betty Friedan talked about the problem that has no name. 
right? And she, this was basically the ennui that uh, suburban white women were experiencing post Second World War when they were uh, many of them were, were expected to be stay at home uh, housewives, and they were bored and they were uh, they weren't really f feeling terribly fulfilled. And so Betty Friedan said, "This is the problem that has no name. This is the biggest issue facing facing women today is the fact that they're bored and they're not sort of reaching their full potential because they're they're not able to sort of uh, fully participate in the public sphere the way men are." But of course, she's not talking about all women. She's talking about very, very rich women. Um, right? She's not talking about the poor women of color who these very rich women are employing to uh, undertake the domestic work in their homes. And so a feminism that really only focuses on those very privileged women, it's, 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 not, it's not helping women in general. In fact, it's maybe like, you might think that, that, that a feminism like that is really just doing the patriarchy's work for it. Because it's, it's, it's making things just as bad, if not worse, for all women by helping mm -hmm. just a few women. And so the thought is that the feminism that we really need to get behind is one that um, looks at all women, not just the women who have the social capital to make their voices be heard, which has historically been uh, middle class or, or wealthy, able-bodied, straight white women. Is it possible? Is it possible to ever have this discussion of feminism for all women? I mean, I'm from Iran. I know Middle East. I know Arab Arab culture, Persian culture, Ottoman culture, Turk culture. I speak Turkish and so forth. And then I was back in Tehran. Just, I mean, part of this women movement, women were extremely, extremely angry, especially after the revolution, when many of the rights has taken away, I mean, many rights, women could not be a judge, uh, laws changed against women, divorce law changed, child custody, so, so much. And then, and then they became so angry, and the anger produced some of the extremely good results and i always pride myself of being part of this uh, the result had been created right but here's what i'm i'm reading the book and i'm saying I, i'm seeing that and you're mentioning i mean the reason that I like the book is because you are mentioning about uh, white women uh, privilege status and we're talking about uh, white feminism and these are other kinds of feminism but here's the thing honestly Honestly, I do believe that feminism or women women movement or women argument has to be argued within its own context. Mm -hmm. You see, for instance, as I was uh, back in Tehran, I got so upset when I saw a white woman professor is coming to Tehran and trying to preach us of how to do the work without you know knowing that exactly what's going on. Mm -hmm. So, so I believe that, or or at least, I mean, I, I just want to know your uh, your intake that um, we tend to in the white privileged society tend to write prescriptions about okay, so this is what you need to do, and this is feminism, and this is women. And do you know that how we can really fix this? Yeah, I, I, I do think, and this is one of those situations where I think I'm cautiously optimistic. I think that you're right that historically we have seen the feminist movement, being, especially internationally speaking, I think, I think it's been one of the um, women from the West, white women, uh, going across the world and saying, we know what's best for you. You know, you, you're you're very oppressed, and we're here to save you. There's been a sort of you know, like savior complex, and it's been really, really problematic in a lot of ways. Um, I do think that the movement is getting better at not making that mistake. Um, and again, it's certainly not not universal, but at least I think there, there's becoming recognition within a lot of the the Western feminist movement that um, 
uh, if you're actually paying attention to decolonial, anti-colonial contexts, you really need to sort of understand world history and not think that there's going to be a one size, one solution that's going to fit everyone. One of the things, that, uh, one of the ways that philosophically feminists approach this is to really take seriously the question about what it is that women have in common across these different lines of ethnicity, race, religion, these sorts of things. Because um, again, historically too often, feminists have pretended to be talking for all women, but really what they were doing is just talking about women like them, right? Whether that, whether that was you know, a cis woman or a Christian woman or a white woman or an American woman. I and, have a um, ton so of questions. Getting so what is, <laughs> go ahead. what is cis woman? What is cis woman? And do you, do you know what are the commonalities that uh, probably all the women's movement or, or all the feminist argument is, uh, is sharing? So this is actually an incredibly controversial question. It's a surprisingly controversial question. And it's actually one where I think most feminists now, they actually, the goal is what they call solidarity across difference. So they recognize that any attempt to actually articulate, this is the thing that all women have in common, is very, very likely to both leave many women out, but also end up sort of subtly prescribing a particular conception of womanhood. So um, one version of this argument comes from the philosopher and the gender theorist Judith Butler. And she says that any, any, any attempt to describe uh, women is, is, is not merely descriptive, but also normative. And what this means, just to unpack the jargon, is basically to just to say, every time I say this is what women are like, I'm also implicitly saying this is what women should be like. And so if you a woman, if you're not like that, you're not you're not a real woman. You don't count. And feminism shouldn't have to concern itself with you. And so we're uh, one issue where, where that where that's a live debate right now in feminist circles and in I think larger sort of cultural discussions is in is in the question of trans women and whether trans women really count as women or uh, or whether the only real woman is a cis woman or a, a woman who's identified as female at birth. Um, so what, is cis what is yeah. cis so woman? What is cis? So cis is short for cisgender, and it just means uh, someone whose whose gender identity matches on to the sex assigned assigned them at birth. So I was born, I was assigned the sex female, and I identify as a woman. So I'm cisgender. Whereas a transgender woman who was assigned the sex male at birth but identifies as a woman. And um, there are um, some people who call themselves feminists. I'm reticent to even call them feminists. Um, they go by the acronym TERF, which is Trans Exclusionary Radical Feminist. And they say that you don't count as a woman unless you were born as a woman. And there are a lot of, a lot of concerns about, uh, about identifying femininity in this way, right? Um, so I think that the, the, uh, the example of this that your, um, your listeners might be most um, well acquainted with is J.K. Rowling. J.K. Rowling is coming out saying a lot of really disappointing things about, about um, trans women. So much so that I, um, I have an eight-year-old daughter and she loves Harry Potter. And she and I are having this discussion about whether the Harry Potter books are going to stay in the house or not. Because she's also, she, she's heartbroken because um, <laughs> she knows trans people, she loves trans people, and she can't believe the author of Harry Potter would say such hateful things about trans women. And she does. It's it's really, really very disappointing. Speaking Apparently, of which, I know that we are recording from our houses and there is this sound in the background and probably <laughs> the toy sound. That's cool. That's cool. I'm sorry. Uh, there's an ice no, cream truck no, going. No, no, no. About it. Absolutely, absolutely fine. Uh, oh, is the ice cream ice cream car? Yeah. Oh my God! I thought that your daughter is. is, is no, no, no. <laughs> okay, and then uh, in your household, there is a rule of not calling your daughter pretty. That's right. Yes. Why? Yes. Um, so I realized when I when she was a baby that um, 
it's like so much of the socialization that goes into how we treat children happens unconsciously. We don't even know we do it. And so I realized as soon as people knew that she was infant, right? She was dressed, she was dressed in green, right? Or yellow, right? But if, if they thought she was a girl, they treated her very, very differently than if they thought she was a boy. And so um, and they would say, pretty girl, pretty girl. And you know, she's very soft and sweet and cooing, right? Or if, she, if, if they thought she was a boy, they'd say, buddy, rough her up a little bit and throw her around and, oh, he's so strong. But, and so the very same infant people will treat very, very differently depending on what they think is happening in the infant's diaper, which is crazy when you think about it, right? And so I, so I thought, you know, that there has to be a way to sort of subtly undermine. I mean, obviously you can't completely, um, and there, it would be, probably not good to sort of completely get rid of the socialization, but to sort of undermine these really, really um, over, overwhelming sources of socialization that kids are, are subject to. Because w when we call a little girl pretty, we're not intending explicitly to tell her, by the way, you are growing up in a society where the most important thing about you is that you are physically appealing to men. That's not the message we think we're giving little girls, but that is one of the messages that we're giving them when we, you know, saturate them with Disney princesses. We, um, we, whether we mean to or not, we're telling them that the most important thing about them is what they look like, not what they like to do, not what they like to think about, not not what they do with their bodies, not what they do with their minds, but what they look like. And this is not a message we give to little boys. We should probably do it more. We should call little boys handsome. We should call them pretty. We should tell them they're looking really cute today. And we should tell little girls that a lot less. And instead, we could do things like one of the things that I talk about in the book is we just need to up our small talk game with little kids, right? If we can just, you know, and notice how hard it is to do it first and notice what that tells us about how much of this was going on unconsciously. Because as a lot of feminists think, um, a lot of these these um, these forces of socialization, we, they're unconscious. We don't realize we're doing them. But then we think by the time we're adults, oh, men and women are so completely different. Well, of course they are. We've, we've treated them differently since day one. So if you can sort of just, you know, like, take the edge off that a little bit, it probably will give a child and then the person they become as an adult, just more flexibility in, in, in the world to be who they really are. Mm -hmm. So uh, we're going to go to the um, uh, to the reintroduction. When I come back, I have two questions. One is uh, what happened that you decided to go in this field of feminism? And the second one is where is love and intimacy in this argument? So stay with me, please. You are listening to Peace Mindedly, a podcast show featuring peaceful bridge makers. We live stream our show every Tuesday at 12 noon Pacific Standard Time. And then our show are live on many social media channels, including Facebook, uh, YouTube, and Prescope, supported by Twitter. And then the same conversation is available on many podcast channels. So so it's easy to find us on Tuesdays live and also on a podcast every time that you would like to hear a meaningful conversation. For our next episode, we are talking with another philosopher from New York, Massimo Pirliucci. I'm hoping that I'm pronouncing his name correctly. He is the philosophy professor at City College of New York and author of A Field Guide to a Happy Life, 53 Brief Lessons for a Living. The book is very small and easy to read, self-help book that probably is a good read during the pandemic because we sometimes need to just chill out and go to some of the texts that is not um, very time consuming. And this can be one of those books. Uh, after that, after uh, Massimo, we are talking with De Deborah Olson.
Deborah is the author of Healing Power of Girlfriends, How to Create Your Best Life Through Female Connections. Deborah consults on mental health issues and, and she, in her book, she's explaining the female connection and the power of female connection. And speaking of which, speaking of connections, I really think that, for, especially for these, uh, these days, during the pandemic and during the climate change and climate disaster, we do need connections. We do need to connect with people who can support us or, you know, to, uh, for the sake of a solid and for the sake of support, we just um, connect with other people. And here's here's the deal, you know, when disaster happens, when uh, we are hit by something unusual, especially the, the most unusual thing that we are dealing right now in our life, probably... I, I really believe that probably the only, the, honestly, the only way to deal with many of these uncertainties and many of this hardship is turning to kindness, compassion, and, and peace not only for ourselves, but for everyone around us and probably for all the people on this planet, I believe. So I really believe that love is an important component in this in this time and in the area that we are living in. So I was preparing myself for the program and then I was thinking in what way to talk about kindness and compassion. And then I decided, you know what, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to open uh, Rumi, open Masnavi, Rumi's masterpiece. Rumi is the mystic poet from Iran who has uh, created thousands lines of ecstasy, love, divine love and, and divine ecstasy in four Forms of words and his words is always soothing for me and for many many million people. His book has been best-selling book in many years in the United States and in Europe. So it's very ironic. I mean, I, I thought that, okay, I'm just going to open Rumi. I'm going to open Masnavi and see what comes. If it's something related to kindness or related to our program, I'm just going to feature it. If it's not going to talk about kindness or it's just off, I'm just going to leave it off. But <laughs> really, ironically, and really, uh, what happened was um, exactly what the poem that I was reading was specifically talking about love, kindness, and compassion. So what I would like to do is I'm going to read them in Farsi, and then, and then I translate them in, in English. So the Farsi lines goes as this. از محبت تلخا شیرین می شود از محبت مسها زرین می شود از محبت دردها صافی می شود از محبت دردها شافی می شود از محبت مرده زنده می کنند از محبت شاه بنده می کنند so, محبت in Arabic, in Hindi, in um, Farsi, in Turkish means kindness. And its root is hope. Hope in Arabic means love. The translation goes, out of kindness, sour becomes sweet. Out of kindness, copper becomes gold. Out of kindness, 
pollute becomes pure. Out of kindness, pain becomes cure. Out of kindness, dead becomes alive. Out of kindness, kings becomes slave. It is in second book, poems, uh, 1530 to 1533. And then, <laughs> honestly, I, I, do I do believe that this is, this is the way we should go. Kindness, compassion, and love. And most probably women are um, perhaps more equipped, perhaps skilled to show the kindness. Because, I mean, this is a gift has given to us by God to um, to carry a baby and to care for the baby so because we become the main source and the caregiver for our kid so probably we are more skilled i mean men are um, as skilled as and there are so many kind beautiful compassionate men i'm not ruling them out but i believe that probably women are more skilled but we are not pussycats <laughs> we are not if uh, women has to stand for their rights and demand a space to uh, to get what they deserve they just do it they do it. I've seen in my life, I've seen in many women, and I am so proud of so many women who has come before me to create a space for me to talk with you right now. And one of those women is our author here that we are talking with, Carol Hay, author of Think Like a Feminist, The Philosophy Behind the Revolution. In this book, Carol explores the social construction of gender in masculine society. She forcefully states that feminists must accept trans women as women. She explains how the feminists perceived sexual assaults and rape culture. She advises on how to counter misogynous actions and behaviors without anger and more constructively. I should say that Carol speaks from a perspective she is familiar with white women uh, feminism and however she 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 validates uh, other feminist movements and other feminist movements other than um, white women feminist movements. So Carol First, uh, I want to see what happened, why you decided you would like to write about uh, feminism and about uh, to encounter this field as your profession. Sure. So um, I think I was, as a philosopher, I became a philosopher, um, not coming from an academic background or an academic family. Um, my sister and I were the first people in our, in our family to go to, to go to university. And... And so I never, uh, I think a lot of academics are used to being surrounded by other academics, other intellectuals, and used to having conversations sort of restricted to those people. And that was just, that wasn't my background. And so um, I became a professor. I got tenure. I did all the things you're supposed to do. I wrote a book for other academics that I'm sure 12 people have written or read, you know. And then I sort of thought I wanted to write about things that I thought other people could really, could really access. And I, and as a feminist sort of personally and politically, I knew that these ideas weren't so esoteric, so difficult to grasp that 
there weren't the sort of thing, it wasn't as if there was something about the subject matter itself that needed to put people off. And I knew that if I, um, if I presented these ideas in the right way, right, if they, you know, if I made it as easy to read as possible, if I made it funny, then people might, might be willing to actually engage with it. And so that's why um, when, when I was given the opportunity to write this book for a broader audience, I jumped on it. And I do think that this is something that, um, that a lot of people really are curious about. There, there are a lot of misconceptions about feminism. I think, um, as I say in the book, it's got a, be, it's got a PR problem. It's, it's sometimes people think it's a dirty word. And um, it's, it struck me as this is something that this is something that, I, that my training could help me clear up. It could help people really understand what, what feminism is about. And that this, something could help, this is something that could help both people in their individual lives and then also help making those bridges that you, that, 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 that you talk so much about in this program, right? Um, making these connections to other people, right? Whether that's uh, other women, other men, other social groups. And so I think a book like this really stands to help people think through both what they're what they're going with going through personally, right? I know that, for example, a lot of women are uh, dealing with a pandemic and realizing that their lives are just untenable, right? The, the, the amount of work that they're putting into homeschooling their children, raising their children without any of these sort of like the, all the social sports have have fallen away, and so much of this work that was already falling falling disproportionately on women um, is now falling on them even more. And what's interesting is that also, I think many men are realizing this, right? In, 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 in heterosexual couples, men are now realizing, oh my good, I had no idea how much work kids really are. Because even, even the wealthiest men at this point, it, it can't, the work can't be outsourced anymore. I mean, now we're starting, people are bringing back their nannies and these sorts of things. But for a while there, every single family really understood how much work this is. And hopefully, I think maybe they're also realizing how much we're exploiting the people who had been tasked this with this work, whether whether that was mothers, whether that was you know paid nannies or uh, babysitters or daycare workers or teachers, right? And so ideally, uh, one 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 good thing that, that might come out of the, the pandemic that we're living through is a new appreciation of the amount of work that it takes to raise the next generation of citizens, and um, hopefully that we're not going to just fall back into um, the exploitation of, of that work and really maybe appreciating it more. Yes, yes, hopefully. I, I'm, I, I don't want to stick exactly with the questions, but I really, I'm really eager to know the book is written and explained in a way that it's very easy to understand. Uh, although the concept, some, some, sometimes the concept can get overwhelming, but if you stay through the process, it's easy to understand. So how did you acquire this language to explain the book in a way that is easy to understand? I think in part it's been informed by my teaching. So I've been teaching university for probably about 20 years at this point, and I've been teaching feminist theory to a lot of different kinds of students. And so when you do it this long, you, you start to sort of see there are sort of common blind spots. There are certain common mistakes that people tend to make or common things that people tend to get hung up on. And so and you develop these tricks to sort of fly under the radar and realize, oh, this is a situation where you can catch more flies with honey than with vinegar. You know, even often, I think sometimes what it is, is just admitting that the stereotypes are what they are. Right. I mean, I find it very, very helpful to go into a classroom and just have students talk to me about okay, what are your stereotypes of gender? What do you think men and women really are like? And at first, they, they, you know, they, 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 they think they shouldn't be honest about this, so I have to get the ball rolling. And some of them are kind of offensive stereotypes, right? You know, that women can't drive and men won't ask for directions and these sorts of things. Um, and then you turn it into a bit of a joke and it's a bit of a battle of sexes between the students. But it's important to do this because we need to sort of point to all of the, the ways that we, that we unthinkingly um, put people in boxes, right? We, we unthinkingly pretend that if someone's a woman, this is what they're going to be like. If this is if someone's a man, this is what they're going to be good, good at. 
And once we realize just how unthinking we thinking would we do that, we can hopefully um, stop doing it quite so often and we can hopefully realize just how constraining this is for people to, to, be, to have these, th these expectations placed upon them and not really have any other options for how else they might want to live your life, right? So you were mentioning earlier that you think that because women have, um, many women have the experience of having a child, of burying the child, of caring for the infant, that this attunes them to something in the world, right? It, it, it makes them, it gives them skills that men like aren't as likely to have just because they haven't been given the gift of having these experiences. And I think that's absolutely right, but that's not necessarily anything to do with our biology necessarily, right? I mean, especially now with Thursday, like I didn't breastfeed my daughter, I didn't want to. In part because I wanted her father to be able to have that that, that close, intimate bonding time with her as well, right? Um, and I think that we're as a society we're realizing that these things are not as tied to our biology as we used to be, and as we think we are, and that um, and that there are the, there's there's a variety of human experiences, and there's a richness in human experiences that we tend to segregate off into boxes and say these are the things that men get to do, and these are the things that women get to do. And notice how also how how strictly we police people who who, who cut against those um, those boundaries. Right. So I don't know. I suspect as a woman who's who's articulate, who's intelligent, who's opinionated, you've probably once or twice come in your life uh, in your life come in, come into contact with men who thought you just weren't being very feminine. I mean, I get that all the time as a philosopher because I've got opinions, right? You know. And so too, you know, a man who's 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 calm, who's quieter and more compassionate and more, and more empathetic and better at listening, right? I'm sure he's he, he faces um, all sorts of social backlash for for not acting in appropriately masculine ways. And it wouldn't be nice if just culturally we could get beyond that and actually just encourage people to develop a wide swath of views and, uh, and, and characteristics and um, things they're good at. I mean, I think our, our lives as humans would be better and we would, we would get so much more out of life if we, if we were given more flexibility and if, if the, the shackles of gender were loosened, you know? And this is exactly what the book is talking about, Think Like a Feminist. So how can we think like a feminist? Yeah. Well, there's lots of ways to think like a feminist. <laughs> I think a, a lot of it has to do with learning, learning the history, you know, learning the history of how men and women have been treated differently, how have they been faced with these, with these um, different expectations, and then really ourselves asking, is this who I am? Is this what I want? Is this just, just because society tells me this is what's appropriate for someone like me? Um, do I, do I need to be, to be shackled to that? Or can I, um, can I, um, have more flexibility and ask myself what I really want, not just because this is what I'm told people like should like like me should want. Right. Something I think it's at least in my opinion, correct me if I'm wrong, is happening is this notion of big sister. So back in old ages, uh, old days, um, I don't know, maybe 25, 28, I don't know, many, many years ago, it was this notion that, okay, women need to be toughen up, be a bit more masculine and go up the ladder. And when they, they go up the ladder, they close the door and they shut and they, they stay there for the rest of their life and they do not help any other women. But right now we have this, especially after Me Too movement, we have this new notion that a sisterhood notion that, okay, so I'm going up the ladder and I'm going to help as many women as I can. And, and I'm going to just be, I, I have a goosebump. I mean, it's just this, this notion of uh, we are in this together and we are going to not, not, not fight per se, not an angry fight, but we are going to fight against this, a good fight together. So, is this something is happening? You think? I think so. I think so. One of the things I talk about in the book is um, there's a there's a very complicated history of solidarity amongst women, right? Other oppressed groups 
at least have the luxury of being able to hate their oppressor. Right? Think about this, right? So you know whether it was you know like um, black people who were who were uh, forced to be chattel slaves in in, in America, right? Or um, you know, Jewish people in in, in, in the ghettos um, in, in Europe, right? At least they were given the luxury of of having each other and of being able to hate their oppressor. And there's a strength in that, right? There's a strength in sort of banding together with people like you. Right? Women haven't been per per permitted that historically because women almost always have more in common with the men in their lives than they do with uh, women across lines of race, across lines of class, across lines of religion. And this makes it incredibly hard for women, women to bond together in these forms of, uh, with these bonds of solidarity because they often don't really have much in common with each other, right? And it's, and it's prevented women from uh, having the kind of collective action that you that, that, that you've seen in um, in other groups where you sort of where you where you band together and you have strength in numbers, right? And so historically, we've seen that women actually have have had trouble um, with solidarity because they often don't have much in common. I think that's starting to change. I think in, in part we are sort of seeing some commonalities um, that many women experience, right? So, for example, in, in the Me Too movement, what we're seeing, right, so many women coming together and saying, yes, we do have these shared experiences of unwanted sexual contact and unwanted sexual advances from men. It's not just me. It's not just a few women. It's a lot of women, um, the vast majority of women, really. Um, and so women are now are now able to sort of band together and um, and realize that this that these are common experiences. I think we've seen these moments um, several times throughout throughout history. We saw it in the 70s um, with consciousness raising groups. Um, but again, those but th th those groups tended to be very homogenous in terms of race and class, right? Whereas one of the things that's that's exciting about the Me Too movement is that is that it seems to sort of span race, span class. And we're seeing a lot more women sort of banding together and and, and recognizing that th these are these are shared problems and hopefully we can have, we, and we're starting to see shared solutions as well. So, so far, we, I think we have had about uh, three waves, uh, first wave feminism, second wave, and uh, third wave. So um, can we see any of these implications in the fourth wave uh, feminism, or how does, in your opinion, the fourth wave feminism might be look like? I don't know. I see... The way, as I say in the book, the wave metaphor is useful in some ways, but it's also sort of because it gives the impression that the, that the first wave is done. The first wave was about getting women the right to vote, the women getting women the right to own property, these sort of formal legal equalities. Um, but again, that's still like we're not done everywhere, not across the world, and these are still victories that we that we have to defend, right? Um, so the first wave isn't yet done. The second wave then was supposed to be um, moving beyond these formal legal equalities to more sort of informal sources of, of inequality, right? So the, sort of the informal norms and um, ways we interact with people, things that you can't write laws about, but still prevent um, women and men from being equal. Can you right? give us an example? Yeah, so even just a lot of uh, expectations of gender, right? So the thought that women, um, women aren't good at math, women aren't good at logical thinking, women aren't good at spatial rotation. That way, that, so, so women should really, really shouldn't be um, yeah, doctors, lawyers, engineers, these sorts of things, because they're really not good at it. Um, of course, if you tell someone they're not good at something, chances are very good they're not going to be very good at it, right? <laughs> and so, secondly, feminism realized that if you that we have to start chipping away at, at 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 these at these informal things, right? So, so we can't just fix marriage laws so that women can now join the own property with their husbands. That 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 would be something something that first wave feminism was focusing on. Second wave feminism is also looking at these informal, you know, distribution of of care work within the house, right? So you can't write a law that tells husbands that they have to empty the dishwasher. Right, but the fact that, that husbands never emptied the dishwasher are going to make it harder for wives to, you know, 
uh, flourish in the rest of their lives if they're stuck doing most of the domestic labor at home, right? So second wave feminism looks at this sort of more informal stuff. Again, it's a work in progress. Um, third wave feminism then came along in the, in the 1970s or so, 70s, 80s. And third wave feminism realized that these first two waves of feminism had been, as I'd said earlier, focusing far too much on uh, women who are already very privileged, right? Rich women, white women, these sorts of things. And so third wave feminism really focuses on making sure we have um, all women in our sites, not just very privileged women. And it focuses, and make, make sure we have a recognition that that, that the goal should be to, to help um, usually, um, especially uh, disadvantaged women. Um, and so I don't know if we're ready for a fourth wave because I don't think we're done with the first three. I think, I don't know, sometimes people say we're in a sort of post-feminism or a feminist utopia, but no, I mean, I think, I, I, I don't think we're done with the first three. I think all three are still, the battles of all three are still being fought. I'm, I, I think we've definitely made progress, um, but there's still a long way to go. Yeah, so I um, I received an email from one of our audience. They ask, do you read any other, uh, what other books do you read other than philosophy and feminism, books related to feminism? <laughs> you my bookshelves. Yeah, <laughs> probably that's what you're asking. <laughs> that's great. I try to read as widely as possible, honestly. Um, yeah, I, I, I try to read, as you can see from behind me, there's fiction, there's nonfiction. I read male authors. I read female authors. I um, I think my favorite authors are those who really appreciate words for their own sake in some ways, right? So some people really like a good story. I like a good sentence, if that makes sense. So, and are you thinking? Okay, the other question: Are you thinking about any other books in the topic of feminism? Your you next mean, book? To, to write more going forward. Uh -huh, I uh -huh. am, but I'm still it's still in early stages. I don't know. I mean, I, I, so this is um, the, the writing for the public is something that I'm relatively new at, and so I'm still I've still I've got the professor job that that's, that's my main gig, and this is sort of a side gig, and I'm really enjoying it. But I've got some I'm, I've got some more sort of straightforward philosophy that I that, that I'm going to be writing first before I sort of move to the next book. But I think but there are there are these issues in um sort of in, in presenting feminism to a general audience that that that, that I do want to continue to explore. So I think. If this book sells sells well enough, I would certainly love to be able to write a second one. Um, yeah, excellent, excellent. Carol, stay with us. You are listening to Peace Mindedly, a podcast show featuring peaceful bridge makers. For this hour, we are talking with Carol Hay, philosophy professor at University of Massachusetts Lowell and author of Think Like a Feminist. So you can find the book online, also available on goldtoon.com, a website I manage with Mateen and with a group of foreign correspondents. It's a good read. It's easy to read and easy to understand. And I do recommend recommend the book to whoever is interested to learning more about women's movement and how it shaped and the philosophy behind uh, behind the movement. You can find our show on so many social media channels, on Facebook, on YouTube, on uh, Prescope. It's the application supported by Twitter and then so, so many areas. Also edit and upload the audio version of the same conversation on many podcast channels, Spotify, iTunes, Google uh, Play, and many, many places. So just search Peace Mindedly and you'll find us. 
Yes, and if you would like to talk with us, I just had a few uh, questions, uh, three, four questions from our audience uh, through email. So if you ask your questions, we, try, we do our best to feature it in our program. At the end of the program, we ask our guests to share a statement, a prayer, or something meaningful about peace, about kindness and compassion. And I'm just going to have Carol to tell us what she would like to share with us about peace kindness and compassion yes this is this is hard I I I, I thought about a reading and I could I couldn't decide on one so <laughs> but um but I but I love what, what, what you do with this podcast and I think it's really important and I think for me the um one of the things that motivates me to be a feminist and um motivates my work as a philosopher is this sense of interconnection that we have with all other people and if we can just if we can be open and non-judgmental and really hear people where they are and i think that that ability it's not it's not easy it's not easy to approach someone with, with walls with, you know, with our walls down um but if we can do it in a way that's non-judgmental and really try to he hear people where they are and have them hear us where we are i think that that's that that possibility is is something that that leaves open the, the chance of real social change i think Yes, hopefully. Okay, Carol, I know that I, I, I closed the program by uh, sharing statements about peace, but I just remembered that I desperately wanted to ask one question and I didn't. <laughs> And I'm going to ask that question. Okay. So, Carol, where is love and intimacy mm. in this argument? So, in your opinion, um, is there space for love, intimacy, uh, sex, enjoying sex, ecstasy, and this kind of things in this uh, feminism argument? Yeah, I think there absolutely is. I think that there's room for a kind of genuine connection because it, because I think I think true genuine connection needs to happen between equals. And I think that if we follow gendered scripts, uh, men and women aren't set up to be equals, not 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 in the world as, as it is now. And so I think that the possibility of true intimate connection is possible really only stands if um if we're meeting each other as equals and i think feminism is that possibility it means fighting against gendered scripts gendered norms it means it, and so that whether, whether that's in the home and in the, in the sharing of the domestic labor right whether that's in the bedroom it means it means just not going along with what society tells you pe that people like you whether you're a man or woman this is what you're supposed to do what you're supposed to want but I think feminism gives us the tools to break down those shackles of expectation. And if we do that, then we stand a chance of really, really intimately connecting. And it's certainly been the, it's certainly been the case in my life that um, once you really, really move beyond um, gendered expectations and th th there's a chance of, of real love, I think. So how, how, is, how it unfolds in your life, in your relationship went beyond uh, gender expectations and had create intimacy? Uh, for me, honestly, it involved it involved a divorce. Um, it uh -huh. involved, yeah, it involved a divorce from someone who um, who was not as egalitarian as he said he was, and it was it, for me it was it was not, it was not a life I could live, and it was not a life I wanted to um, to uh, for my daughter to have to, mm -hmm. to have to live. And so um, and so I, I I left that relationship and I started a new one with um, a new person who's. Um, and it's actually it's, it's it's a meeting of equals, and it, it shatters all gender con uh, conventions. My um my partner is actually a trans man now, and so it's a queer relationship, and um and it it's it's it, yeah it, it, it's 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 an actual relationship built on equality, and it's something I'm really happy my daughter gets to see, and it's honestly it's it's something that's made for a lot of happiness in my life as well. So beautiful. Um, that's not yeah. yeah. 
Beautiful. Thank you so much. Best of luck with the book and with the feminism life, with the love life and with everything, uh, with the faculty life and all of those. Thank you so much for being our honored guest. Here I have Matin with me, my assistant producer. Thanks so much for a great discussion. As always, I learned so much. Yes. Thank you so much and Khoda Hafiz.